We come now to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 19. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you receive, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, after that he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as it were, to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God, because we witnessed against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have only hoped in Christ in this life, we are of all men most to be pitied. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the resurrection of Christ, and we thank you that he has indeed been raised from the dead. We ask you to show us what this significance is, the significance of Christ's resurrection on our behalf, and grant us full faith and greater faith to believe in this resurrection, because it is for our salvation. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Now, when we think about the resurrection of Christ, 1 Corinthians 15 is the common passage, the central passage that has various explanations, many explanations to defend the fact that Jesus Christ did rise from the dead. He rose from the dead in bodily form, in physical form, not as a ghost, not as a phantom, but actually in physical form. That's what the Bible means by the resurrection of Christ. And the resurrection of Christ is not only in relation to himself, but also in relation to us. We are the body of Christ, the Bible says. And as the body of Christ, we will rise from the dead also one day. All the righteous people, that is us, we who believe in the gospel, and all the wicked people, all who do not believe in the gospel of Christ, there will be a resurrection on the day of judgment. On that day of judgment, when Christ returns, we all will rise from the dead. And the righteous will live with Christ forever, and the wicked will be thrown into the lake of fire, into eternal punishment forever, into hell forever and ever. This is what the Bible clearly describes and teaches. 
This passage is one such passage that enumerates the various truths and reiterates the various truths about the resurrection of Christ and our relationship to that. Even though we have such a clear chapter of the Bible speaking of this topic, it is amazing and and actually incredulous that there would be so many people claiming to be Christians when they're actually not, within Christianity, claiming to be Christians when they're not true Christians, saying that Jesus did not rise from the dead. Both within Christianity we have detractors, and outside of Christianity we have them. We have, in our time, in current time, we have Jehovah's Witnesses who deny the physical or bodily resurrection of Christ. We have Christian scientists who deny the bodily resurrection of Christ. We even have liberals or liberal Christians, which is a contradiction because they cannot be true Christians, but for the sake of explanation, these liberal Christians say Jesus did not rise from the dead because they assume anti-supernaturalism. They assume miracles do not happen. And because they assume miracles do not happen, they say Jesus did not rise from the dead. He swooned or something else happened. That's what they claim but there was no bodily resurrection of Christ. And then outside of Christianity, we have Islam. Islam says Jesus never died on the cross. He did not experience that kind of death. And because he did not experience death on the cross, he did not rise from the dead either. They both denied the death of Christ for sins and also the resurrection of Christ for our salvation. They reject it all. So there will always be people, even though there are clear teachings of the Bible, But what we should do is prayerfully and with sobriety and humility read the scriptures and understand what they say about the truths of the faith because it is a matter of the gospel. The true gospel is in jeopardy if we compromise the person of Christ, his actual identity as deity and humanity, perfect humanity, and also the ministry of Christ, his perfect life, his death, and his resurrection because all of this relates to the gospel and our own personal salvation. It relates to who God is and his glory and also his relationship to us, we who are created by him. So let's see 1 Corinthians 15 and what it says to defend this truth of the gospel of Christ and the resurrection of Christ and our relationship to that gospel and resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand. The Apostle Paul, when he says, I make known, present tense, he is basically repeating what he has already said to them, what he had already preached to them when he approached them and visited their city, the city of Corinth, which we could read about in Acts chapter 18. There we read how Paul was preaching the gospel to the Corinthians. And here, he had already preached what he is now writing. He's summarizing and writing what he had already explained when he was verbally preaching the gospel to them. And he says, you received it. And he also says, you stand in it. You received it. You did not object. You did not have any speculations. You did not have any skepticism. You said, okay, yeah, that sounds right. That's consistent with the Old Testament scriptures. We understand your character. We understand the others who are with you and their character and honesty and ministry. And so we believe it. We believe that Jesus rose from the dead. We understand that you are all eyewitnesses. So they received it and they stood in that. 
They had a standing before God in that truth of the gospel. And that's why he calls them brethren in verse 1. He calls them brethren because they said, they believed, they confessed faith in this gospel. So he calls them brothers, brothers in Christ, brothers in the spiritual truths of the gospel. Then he says in verse 2, By which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. This gospel that they received and by which they stood, they stood in right standing and good standing before God, it actually saved them from sin. Saved them from the sin and the punishment of that sin. The wrath of God would have been inflicted upon them. They would have experienced eternal torment in hell, but they were saved from that. They were delivered from that. They were rescued from that. Because it's the gospel and only the gospel that saves us. But he puts a condition on it in verse 2. If you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. If you hold fast, if you keep clinging on to that word that you originally confessed, if you let go, then you're not saved. If you let go, then there is no salvation for you. But you have to hold fast to it. You have to endure until the end. Because he says, unless you believe in vain. By believed in vain, he means that there are people who hear the truth and they embrace it or they manifest to other people. They verbally say, their actions show it temporarily. They say, yes, I believe, I believe, I believe. But if they don't hold fast, if they don't cling on to it until the end, then it was a vain belief. It was not a true faith. It was vain belief. He says, you are saved by this if you hold fast unless you believe in vain. So make sure you do not believe in vain. Make sure you understand clearly what is being said to you in the gospel and make sure you understand what God expects of you if you truly believe the gospel. Otherwise, you have a vain belief. So have a true belief. Don't have an empty, futile, worthless belief but a true, genuine, authentic belief in the gospel. Now he explains what he delivered. What did he make known to them when he preached? He summarizes it in verses 3 and 4. This is one summary of the gospel which he mentioned in verse 1. Verse 3 says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. This is what he delivered to them. His discourse to them encompassed these truths. Christ, so we have to know who he is, that he died, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, and all of this according to the scriptures, according to the Old Testament. The Old Testament that was written generations before the coming of Christ, the Old Testament that was written millennia before the coming of Christ. The prophets of the Old Testament predicted all these things, and he says, we announce to you that it actually happened. What the prophets prophesied, the apostles announced as having been accomplished in Christ. That's what happened, that Christ died for our sins. Notice there, he says, for our sins. When Christ died, he did not die merely as a martyr. 
He did not die just for a good cause. He did not die as a moral example of what God thinks of evil in the world and how we ought to avoid violence because violence uh, puts innocent people to death. No, it wasn't because of those kinds of things. It was not so that we might have economic equality. God's concern was not for us all to have the same wage, the exact same wage, the exact same living circumstances. That's what is promoted as Christianity. But that's not true. These are the kinds of things that are promoted as true Christianity. But here it says, it was for our sins. We are sinners against God, and He died for that, to be a substitute for the penalty that we deserve. He took the wrath of God upon Himself that we might not experience it. He made Him, that is God. God made Him who knew no sin to become the sin offering on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. God made Christ our sin offering, our penalty. The animal of the Old Testament that was presented as a sin offering on the altar died in the place of the worshiper as a symbol, as a type, as an illustration of the fact that we deserve to die, but God will take care of putting the punishment of our death on someone else. In the Old Testament, on something else, the animal. And now that Christ has come on him. But he, when he offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. He offered one sacrifice for sins for all time for us. And then he sat down at the right hand of God. That's what it means. Christ died for our sins as our substitute in our place. We also see Paul emphasizing in verses 3 and 5 that it was according to the scriptures. According to the scriptures that he died. In Daniel chapter 9, it says Messiah, that 9.26, Messiah will be cut off. Cut off means executed. Messiah, Christ, will be executed. It says in Isaiah 53, all of us like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was crushed and he was forsaken for us. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. A guilt offering. Guilt offerings are offerings when they are dead. They are acceptable when they are dead. Jesus died. He was put to death according to these scriptures of Isaiah 53, Daniel 9, 26. Uh, uh, there are many other scriptures. Psalm 16, Psalm 22, that describe the death of Christ. Then it says, too, that he was buried and raised up on the third day. Why does it say he was buried, and why is that so important? Because if he's not buried for three days, it will not be convincing enough to skeptics that he was actually dead. If he's not actually buried, and buried for some time in the grave, if he's not buried like that, then the skeptic could easily say, well, it just appeared that he died. It just that he swooned. He was very close to death, but then he was revived and came to life in that sense. He didn't actually die completely. That's why the scriptures predicted and announce here that he was buried, and buried for three days, and he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. 
buried and raised on the third day according to the scriptures. According to the scriptures, then what scriptures of the Old Testament announced that he would be buried and then rise on the third day? Well, there are several in the Old Testament that indicate this truth. Hosea chapter 6. Hosea chapter 6, verse 1. This passage speaks of the corporate nature of Christ's death for us. When he died, we died. And when he rose from the dead, we rose from the dead. It says, Hosea 6, 1. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. So let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn and he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. This passage is actually one of the bases of Romans chapter 6 that says, we were buried with him in baptism and we are raised with him in newness of life. And even Galatians 2.20, for I have been crucified with Christ. These kinds of passages are based on Hosea 6, which announced that Jesus would die and we who believe in him die with him and we also rise with him. And we rise with him on the third day, Hosea 6.2 says. Well, what about Psalm 16 and verse 10? Psalm 16, verse 10 says, You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Decay in the human body begins on the fourth day. As we know from John chapter 11, Lazarus, Lazarus had been dead for four days, and Jesus was warned, You can't do anything about it because there will be a stench. That he was told, but they did not contemplate the mighty power of God, that even on the fourth day with the stench of Lazarus' body, that Jesus could bring him back to life, which he did. But to ensure that there was no decay and that he rose on the third day, the scriptures of Psalm 16, verse 10 say, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And we read in Acts 2, 29 and 30, that the Apostle Peter, after quoting this passage, says, David the patriarch, he was a prophet, and we know that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. It's with us right now. We can go over there in Jerusalem, and we can go find his tomb and say, he's there, his dead body was buried there, and he did not come out. So he was not talking about himself, Peter the Apostle says, he was talking about the Christ because he was a prophet and he knew that God had sworn to him to seat one of his descendants on the throne. So he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. That's what happened. These are sample passages that show that resurrection on the third day was predicted many, many years ago by the prophets to fulfill the scriptures. So, why does the Apostle tell us this? In order to buttress our faith. In order for us to have assurance that what the Apostle Paul preached and what the other eyewitnesses preached of Jesus' resurrection was not a human invention. They were not fabricators. They did not go on uh, preaching and, and teaching fictions. 
They were not into fables and myths. They were into reality, into facts, into evidence. And one piece of evidence, which is a compilation of many prophets of the Old Testament, was God announced to them the exact ways in which those things about Christ's resurrection would be fulfilled. So, on the testimony of the prophets Moses and the rest of the prophets, we can have assurance that these were predicted and these are from God. That the gospel and the resurrection of Christ are all in the working of God throughout history for our salvation. Furthermore, contemporary witnesses, those were ancient witnesses, ancient in proximity and time to the apostles, but now we have contemporary witnesses in the time of the first century. The Corinthians had these individuals who testified. It says in verse 5, He appeared to Cephas, that is to Peter, Simon Peter, then to the twelve, and when he says the twelve, of course Judas had hanged himself, so he wasn't around, and Thomas wasn't there in the first appearance. This expression, the twelve, is simply an idiom, a reference to that group and body of disciples, the disciples of Christ. He appeared to them, and then eventually a week later he appeared to all 12 of them, and Thomas was there in John chapter 20. Then, verse 6, after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. More than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. To fall asleep means to die. It says here, more than 500 at one time, and most of whom are still alive. Implication, Corinthians, you have heard some falsehoods, maybe from the Sadducees, or maybe from the Marcians, or the, the Proto-Marcians, that is, a heretic named Marcion, and some of his early disciples in the first century who were teaching that Jesus did not rise bodily because he believed that the human body itself was evil, and it should not be considered that God would associate with a human body in Christ. So he said there was no physical resurrection. There were others, the Sadducees, Marcion, there were others in the first century who denied the miraculous and denied the bodily resurrection of Christ. So he says, why don't you, Corinthians, wherever you have heard this troubling uh, news that Jesus did not rise from the dead, why don't you go ask hundreds of witnesses and why don't you go re-ask and re-examine, re-inquire with those eyewitnesses of the apostles who actually saw this, so that you can have assurance that this did not happen magically, this was no dark magic, this was no lie, there's no deceit, nothing was done in a corner, nothing like that. It was all open and plain. Go ask the eyewitnesses. Just go ask them. And you can have assurance that it actually happened. Furthermore, verse 7 says, Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. James. James was, according to the book of Acts, he became a leader of the church in Jerusalem. According to the book of Acts, such as Acts 12 and 15, whenever there is some dispute or some controversy, James and Peter are initially mentioned in Jerusalem as two of the main leaders. James, and now it says all the apostles. When he says all the apostles, he's including those that we would today consider missionaries. That is, Barnabas, Silas, where elsewhere in Scripture they are noted 
and called apostles. Not apostle in the sense of the 12 apostles or the apostle Paul, but in the sense that they were commissioned with the gospel to go here and there around the world to preach. To all of them. And some of them they encountered. So why not check again? Now in verses 8 to 10, 8 to 10, the Apostle Paul is going to describe his own conversion and what happened to him. He's describing himself because the false teachers of the day, the false apostles of the day, were very quick to discredit the Apostle Paul. They were very quick to discredit him and to make him lesser than the rest of the apostles, or to make him a nobody, to make him some fanatic. That's why the apostle has to explain himself here. And by the way, even today, if we consider within Christianity, liberal academics, liberal scholars also discredit the apostle Paul, and also Islam and false religions like Hinduism and Buddhism, they are also discreditors of the apostle Paul. They absolutely despise the things that the Apostle Paul says and what he teaches about the true gospel. Both inside Christianity and outside Christianity, even today we have detractors and skeptics of the Apostle Paul. That's why the Apostle Paul has to explain himself. And we ought to see what he says. He says, and last of all, as it were to one untimely born, he appeared to me. And last of all, Paul is now humbling himself and saying, The last of all of these eminent people, all of these illustrious people that he has just mentioned, Cephas, the Twelve, the Five Hundred, James, all the apostles, last of all he appeared to me. So I'm not claiming to be anybody great in and of myself. And in fact, he appeared to me as one untimely born. Untimely born. What he means is that um, an untimely birth happens unexpectedly. Typically, an untimely birth happens unexpectedly. It's a surprise. And that's what happened to the Apostle Paul. We can read about that in Acts chapter 9. To Paul's surprise, he was on his way to persecute the church in Damascus. And on the road to Damascus, Jesus Christ appeared to him and stopped him in his tracks. He revealed himself to him. And he even said, it is hard for you to kick against the goats. Hard for you to kick against the goads. So suddenly and miraculously, Paul was different. He was a new man. Just as an untimely birth suddenly comes out of the womb and, and it is unexpected. And it, the, the child is not in uh, his natural place, but suddenly in another place. That's the kind of thing that Paul describes about himself. Then he says, verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles who am not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. First, here he says, in terms of what he did, he says, I persecuted the church of God and because of this reason, I am the least. The other apostles never persecuted the church, but I did. Before my conversion, before Acts chapter 9, before God converted me, I persecuted the church of God, and he even agreed to putting people to death, like Stephen in Acts chapter 7. He agreed to putting people to death who believed in the gospel. This is the kind of man he was. He worked against the truth. He worked against the church. He worked against these innocent people who were believing in the truth of the gospel. 
That's the kind of man he, had, well, he was. He was breathing out threats. He was a very angry and wicked man in fighting against the truth. So he says, I shouldn't even be called an apostle. I am the least of them. Then why is he called an apostle? And why should we believe him? Verse 10 says, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. So why is Paul to be believed? Not because he's good in himself, not because he committed any kind of great deed. He did not do anything of, of, of value. In fact, he was, he was worthless and he was an enemy of the gospel. It was the grace of God. The grace of God changed him. The grace of God moved him. The grace of God made him into what he is. He had a stony heart and the grace of God changed it and softened it. And thereby he believed and repented of his sins. God's grace was, notice, an effectual grace. It was a powerful grace. It did not prove vain. It worked in him and transformed him so that what he used to persecute, the people he, he used to persecute, now he supports them. Now he lived for them. Now he's a different man. And even though he wanted other people to be put to death, now he is willing to die. Because that's what happened. His contemporaries, his scholastic contemporaries, his academic equivalent to professors of today, those people now wanted to put him to death. And as well, the common people among the Jews, they all conspired at different times to put him to death to persecute him because he now stood up for the truth. This is significant. It's significant because... When we think about the detractors and skeptics of the Apostle Paul, and for that matter, the Bible, those people do not live like this. Those people are unwilling to die for the faith. What they want is to put other people to death. They want to murder and massacre others, but they themselves are unwilling to die for the faith. They are unwilling. But the Apostle Paul was. And that shows how authentic this grace of God was that effectually worked in him. It was not a worthless grace. It was an effective grace. It did not prove vain. So we should believe people like that. The Apostle Paul was that way, and even the prophets were that way. Which one of, your, uh, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Stephen said. And it's true. They were all persecuted. And so those who are willing to stand up in the midst of persecution, have greater credibility according to the Word of God. And that's why we should believe Him, because the grace of God was with Him. Verse 11, Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Well, whoever it was, and I'm not the only preacher, Paul says, whoever it was, you heard the same truth and you believed in that truth. Whoever it was, you stand there. So he says we should still stand there. We should still believe it, hold fast to it. Now verses 12 to 19. They had heard some false teaching and how there is no resurrection of the dead. The body, the physical body, will never rise again. They were taught something of the nature that when the body dies, that's it. We're no different 
than the animals, we're no different than the beasts of the field, we're no different than cattle, we're no different than dogs and hogs. We have breath, but then when we die, that's it. That's what they were taught, which today has its corollary in annihilationism. Annihilationism says the human body, when it dies, it ceases to exist and there's nothing more. There's nothing more. And even annihilationism says today, and this false teaching may have also said, that we have no soul and we have no body that survives death. That's what is taught today, even within Christianity in many, many places. In academia and in many churches, this is taught. But the Apostle Paul seeks to refute that and to show how dangerous it is in relation to Christ and Christ's resurrection. Verse 12. Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now wait a minute, the Apostle says. We have been preaching, we all have been preaching, we who were eyewitnesses of his resurrection. We who saw him rise from the dead, we saw that. How can you deny that? And we've been preaching that. So if we've been preaching what we saw, how is it that some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? How could anybody have the temerity to say, the audacity to say, oh no, there's no resurrection? It would be akin to somebody today preaching that the existence of God, and then somebody in the church says, oh, there is no God, and then there's a movement within the church that says, oh, there is no God, there's no God. In fact, there is, among liberal Christians, a doctrine called the gospel of Christian atheism. They actually call it Christian atheism. You can be a Christian and an atheist. The doctrine of Christian atheism. So that would be akin to a preacher today saying, Believe in God. There is no God but our God. Something of that nature. Believe in God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Preaching that again and again and again, and then some people in the church saying, no, 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 there's no God. And you can be a Christian and an atheist at the same time. Well, this is how Paul is astounded. He's astounded here that he's been preaching this, and then some people are saying, there's no resurrection of the dead. Come on. Significance. Verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. He goes along with the argument in order to refute the argument. He says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, if you say there is generally no resurrection, nobody ever rises from the dead, then he says, not even Christ has been raised. If nobody is going to be raised from the dead, then you, nobody can say Christ rose from the dead. Now, it's not just a matter of general humanity, nobody's going to rise from the dead. Because when you say that, you have to include Christ because he became human like us. He became human like us, so we have to ask, why did he become human like us? Why did he become just like us? And the argument is refuted by saying, not even Christ has been raised. Now, you think it's fun, you think it's curious, you think it's intellectually stimulating to say, oh, there is no resurrection of the dead. You can't just say that, because when you say that, you have to deny the resurrection of Christ. He could not have been raised from the dead. Which goes to show, many people, they like to spout, they, they like to just blurt and spout whatever sounds good, whatever uh, titillates their uh, intellectual curiosities. They like to do that, 
But they don't really consider what they're saying and doing. They don't really consider it and how absurd it is and how much what they say denies the Bible. That's what happened to some of them. He continues in verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Now, if we focus on the resurrection of Christ and say, no, there's no resurrection of Christ, then what we've been preaching is vain or worthless, useless. What we've been saying is useless and not only what we've been saying is useless, what you've been hearing is useless, and your faith in what we've been saying is useless. Useless, useless, useless. Futile, futile, futile. Vain, vain, vain. He's saying it's all nonsense. What's the point of it all? We shouldn't be preaching what we preach. You shouldn't be listening to it. And you shouldn't be saying that you believe it because the content of what we're saying and your actual faith in that content, it's all worthless. It's all vain. It's all rubbish. It's just worthy to be thrown in onto the garbage heap. It's nothing. That's significant. Because we might think that we can make a statement, an assertion. There is no resurrection of the dead. We might make that assertion, but what we have not done is connected the dots often. We have not connected the dots. If we say that, then what about Christ? And if we say that about Christ, then what about the preachers of Christ? And then what about the hearers of Christ? And what about what we said we believed? Everything is, is tied up together and thrown away together. It either stands together or it falls together. Everything would be vanity if we denied it. Furthermore, verse 15. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we witness against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if, in fact, the dead are not raised. Then, the preachers of resurrection would also be false witnesses because we witness against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise. If God did not raise Christ from the dead, and we're saying God raised Christ from the dead, then we are false witnesses against God. Then we who announce it, we have to face the tribunal of God we have to face the judgment seat of God because we lied about God, about something he did not do when we said he did do it. That's serious business too. We will be guilty on that day of judgment for saying things that don't conform to Scripture. And in fact, not only would the false witnesses be the apostles, the false witnesses would also be Christ. After all, did not Christ say, John 14, 19, because I live, you shall live also? Did not Christ say in John 10, 17, no one takes my life away from me. I lay it down on my own initiative and I take it up on my own initiative. Did he not say in John chapter 2, 18 to 22, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up? Did he not say in Matthew 17, 22 to 23 that he would be uh, put into the hands of sinful men, they would kill him, and he would rise on the third day. Did he not say those things? Did he not predict those things? Yes, he predicted all those things. So that would mean that Christ himself would be a false witness. He would be a liar. He would be a liar because he predicted that he would rise from the dead 
when he, in fact, he did not rise from the dead. It gets worse and worse. And if Christ is a false witness, then it would make God a false witness. Because what did Jesus say again and again in the book of John? The Father sent me. And the words that I speak are not my words, but his uh, who sent me. The Father who sent me, I am speaking his words. So now, the false witness would be God himself. Not only the apostles, not only Christ, but also God himself. Working against God. How can God work against God? No, it's impossible. Then he summarizes verses 16 and 17, what he has just said. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. He repeats and summarizes what he just said. But that last part, you are still in your sins. What are we going to do about our condition? What are we going to do about our transgressions? What are we going to do about all of the iniquity and the darkness and the filth and the uncleanness that is inside of us? What are we going to do about it? How are we going to resolve it before we die? How are we going to resolve it before we die? If it is not in the gospel of Christ, which includes the resurrection of Christ, which includes the veracity of everything that is spoken about Christ. What are we going to do? We'll still be lost in our sins. We'll still be dead in our trespasses and sins. The day of judgment will await us, and we are going to be miserable and hopeless people, terrified people, in fact, on that day of judgment, if our sins are not forgiven. And remember, repentance for forgiveness of sins. And we repent and believe in the gospel to be forgiven. It's not an easy thing to deny the resurrection of Christ. Because those who deny it within Christianity and outside of Christianity still are in their sins. And they will be held accountable for those sins on the day of judgment. Romans 4.25 He was delivered up because of our transgressions. And he was raised because of our justification. He was raised because of our justification. Raised because of our justification, or for our justification. If he was not raised from the dead, then we could not be declared righteous. We could not be justified by faith in him. If he was not raised from the dead, God would not look upon us with Christ's righteousness, but only our wickedness. But because he has been raised, God will look upon us with Christ's righteousness. That's why it's important for us not to be continuing in our sins. We need to have the resurrection so that the display of God's glory, the vindication of all of his promises, the life of God in Christ can be transferred to us so that we might be justified. That power that was in Jesus' resurrection might emanate to us, might be effused to us, might be showered upon us. That's what we need. We need his resurrected life to come to us, to give us life. It's because of our justification that he rose from the dead. 
verse 18. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have only hoped in Christ in this life, we are of all men most to be pitied. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If there is no resurrection, then those who have believed in Christ, they just perished. They were still in their sins. Christ was not the resolution to their sins. Christ was not the Savior from sin. They would have perished. And he says later in the same chapter, if all of this resurrection talk is all false, then what's the point? He says in verse 32, 1 Corinthians 15, 32, if from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Let's just have a happy and merry life. Let's pursue, pursue fun, fame, and fortune. Let's just do all of that, eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. There's no point believing in Christ. It's worthless, it's useless, it's vain. Why are we restricting ourselves? Why, he says, we are of all men most to be pitied. Why are we exposing ourselves to the ridicule of our friends and family? Why are we exposing ourselves to the persecution from wicked people against us because we live for righteousness' sake? Then we would be foolish people. We would be most pitied. It would be ridiculous for us to stand firm in the things of God if we only hope in Christ for the things of this life. If he's only going to help us have a better job, more income, better health, better place to live, things of that nature, if we're only concerned about those things, then we are of all men most to be pitied if we're only hoping in Christ for this life. But we're not, is the point. We're not. What we are doing is we are living for the life to come. We know that there is a day of resurrection. We know that we have a soul that survives the body. And we know that upon the day of resurrection, our soul will unite with our body, our new body, our resurrected body, and we will live with Christ forever. We will live with him forever and ever, where there is no more death, no more pain, no more sorrow, no suffering, no misery anymore. That's why we live for him, and that's why his resurrection is important. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. That's why he rose from the dead, to give us that kind of hope, not to be miserable, pitiful people not to be people who perish in their sins. So let's believe in his resurrection. Let's have greater confidence in it. Let's preach it. Let's teach it. And let's do like the apostles. Constantly in the book of Acts, they preach Jesus and the resurrection. Jesus and the resurrection. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen. Father in heaven, we ask you to grant us great faith. Grant us greater faith than we have now. And may we put our hope in the things to come, not in the world, not in the things of the world, not in the people of the world, but to put our hope in you. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, we shall rise 
and be with him forever. So conform us to his image in all things and glorify your name. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.